It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by EmailRevealer.com. You can go to EmailRevealer.com, get an autographed copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator, but also to all different kinds of services like uh, the online infidelity investigation. You give us your spouse's email address, we trace it back to online dating websites and personal ads, catfish investigations, asset searches, background reports, all kinds of different services at EmailRevealer.com. I'm really excited about today's show. We have a a real hero, uh, Juanita Broderick, uh, and she just came out with a new book, You'd Better Put Some Ice on That, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. This book is just fresh off the presses. The ink's barely dry. It's barely a week old. Uh, so finally, we can have a... She's been on the show before, but I wasn't available that weekend. We had the William Ramsey do the interview. So my first time meeting uh, Juanita Broderick, and it's a pleasure. Uh, Juanita, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Ed. God bless you. I love that voice. That's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about yourself. Before we get into all this stuff about this book and these Clintons, um, tell us about who is Juanita Broderick. Uh, tell us about yourself first. Yeah, Juanita Broderick uh, worked for years in her own business. I was a registered nurse, and I owned and operated uh, two nursing facilities. One was for geriatrics, and the other was for severely handicapped and mentally uh, disabled children. And it was a wonderful life. I enjoyed it. Uh, it. It was great. I sold my facilities back in 2008, and now I'm retired and stay on the tennis court a lot of times. Ah, very nice. And you still live in Arkansas? Yes, still in my same hometown. Okay, God bless you. And I, I bet grandkids, you got grandkids? Oh, I've got one most adorable grandchild that, that ever lived. Of course, everybody <laughs> always says that, but he's just the light of my life, he and his father. Okay, great. You got the best one. Okay. <laughs> we need a brother. Got the I know, best my one. son. Yeah, yeah, my son is an attorney here. Okay. Well, that must come in handy, right, with all the problems you've had. Now, um, oh yeah, especially yeah, especially when Andrea Mitchell said discredited regarding my story, and he had to write a letter to NBC. <laughs> you know that Andrea Mitchell. You know it's so disappointing. Uh, someone with with such a long career would just uh, sell herself out to the Clintons like that. The way, uh, especially during the campaign, uh, very disappointing. Uh, but Juanita Broderick, you can find her story at JuanitaBroderick dot com, and it's not spelt like the Broderick, like everybody thinks. It's B R O A D D R I C K. And if you're in Vegas here, by the way, too, I got a big Vegas audience. She's going to be in town next week, the nineteenth and the twentieth, uh, first for a meet and greet over at the Trump Hotel. And then over at 555 East Washington at the Veterans Memorial. Uh, so l- looking forward to that. That'll be coming up on January 19th and 20th. Now, the book just came out. How's the, the book is just, the, the ink's still wet. Okay. How's the book being received? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Oh, it's being received great if we could just get cooperation from Amazon. That's my biggest problem right now is them holding orders and pulling my post and having to put a second one up. But we're still working on that. Yeah, explain. What's going on with that? Because you think this would be a, a, a like they wouldn't dare touch this. Uh, but it seems like they're running I some interference. Yeah. So confusing to us, Ed, we were rated in the top 10 uh, two days ago, and then all of a sudden it just disappeared. And we keep asking why. We had to rush and get a second one up. But when we put the second one up, it lost all of its bestseller ratings, and they will not tell us why they pulled it. It's, it's absolutely so discouraging. But we know that uh, Jeff Bezos is a supporter of the Clintons, and we know about their influence around the world, and uh, and the things disappearing around the Clintons is is commonplace. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah but, it's sad to say, isn't it? Yeah. So tonight you're going to be on Hannity, though, or Sean Hannity, right? Well, no, I won't be on the TV. I'll be on his. Uh, we're going to tape at one, uh, and then I, he'll run it just shortly later. I'm, I'm not for sure. It's just on his radio. Well, excellent. You'll definitely sell a lot of books there. Get you right back up there at number one um, for what's it called? True uh, brand, y'all. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's a good guy. Give us an idea. Now, how did you first run across the Clintons and Bill Clinton way back in the 70s? Well, back when I was running my nursing home, I got involved in his gubernatorial campaign, and I began to volunteer, put out yard signs, and hand out information. I was really taken with this man. He was. We all thought he was going to do such great things for Arkansas, and I wanted to support him. And then one day, the uh, uh, office in Little Rock, his state campaign office, called and asked if he could come by my nursing home on a campaign tour in our area. And that's when I first met him. And uh, uh, we had pictures taken, and it was, real, it was real exciting for us to have him at our nursing home. And so he came over and began to talk to me after we had the photo ops and began to talk to me about my nursing home. And you know, Ed, a light bulb went off in my head. I thought, you know, I need to tell him how we're struggling in Arkansas. The reimbursement rate was so low and couldn't begin to cover all the costs we were experiencing. And he just sort of lit up and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about that sometime. He said, are you ever in Little Rock? And I told him, yes, I'd be there in two or three weeks at a nursing home seminar that I was bringing my director of nursing to. And so that's how it all evolved and how I ended up in Little Rock. Now, he was running for governor at the time. He wasn't even governor yet. No, he was attorney general. Attorney general. OK. Now, now did you did you think he was coming on to you at that point, uh, the whole meeting in, in uh, Arkansas? Oh, no, I didn't know anything about his reputation, and it was just beginning to develop at that time. I'm sure there were stories out there, but I'd never heard them. I was very respectful of him and thrilled at the opportunity to get to talk to him. And at the time, you were a Democrat, huh? Yes. And and so, and and it was this experience with Bill Clinton that's totally turned you off the Democrats? No, uh, it didn't. It didn't then. In fact, I supported and and gave a lot to the Obama really? uh, campaign. 
when he was running uh, running against Hillary. I would do anything to be <laughs> Hillary I can imagine that, yeah. So, yeah, I got very involved in his first term and donated a considerable amount, probably $5,000, to his campaign. And uh, But then by the time the second uh, uh, campaign came around, I didn't even vote. I was so disillusioned with him. Yeah, that was a disappointment. Yeah, but uh, but don't tell Hannity you, you donated to Obama. Explode his head will explode. Yeah, Ed, I would have done anything to de- to yeah. defeat her. You know. And I hear you. I was a big Bernie supporter in the, in the last one, and, and and the Clintons totally stole. They they totally robbed uh, Bernie here in Nevada. It was uh, outrageous um, what went on there. Now, so you go to Little Rock and, and you run into Clinton again. Uh, give us an idea what happened at that occasion. Sure. Um, uh, my nurse, Norma Rogers, and I went down on April the 24th, 1978, checked into our hotel. And then the next morning when we got up, I called his campaign office and a young lady answered and I told her who I was. And she said, oh, Mrs. Hickey, she said, uh, Mr. Clinton said, if you ever called, be sure and call this number, which I immediately called. And he answered the phone. And I told him, I said, I'm here, and I brought all these. I worked on graphs and everything imaginable to show him what the costs were and what we were being reimbursed. I was so excited about showing this to him. And so he said, I said, can we run over at noon to your campaign headquarters because we'll be off for an hour uh, from the seminar? And he said, you know. I'm not going to be there today. He said, I'll just come to your hotel now. He said, uh, we can meet down in the uh, coffee shop. And I was thrilled. I thought, well, great. He's coming over here. Uh, so I told Norma, I said, you go on to the meeting. And as soon as I'm through in the coffee shop, I'll be right on to the meeting. So that's how that transpired. And he said, I'll call you when I get there. Mm-hmm. Well, lo and behold, he called about 10 or 15 minutes after Norma left for the seminar. And he said, you know, Juanita, he said, there's so many people down here and it's so crowded and there's even reporters down here. Can we just have coffee and discuss this in your room? And now we're talking 40 years ago. I'm sure I was a little alarmed, but Bill Clinton was the attorney general of the state of Arkansas. And I didn't think I had anything to fear from him. So I told him, yes, that'd be just fine. I'll order coffee to the room. And and uh, uh, he said, well, I'm talking to someone. I'll be up shortly. So the coffee came. And shortly thereafter, a knock on the door. And he came in. Um I showed him over to the table by the window that uh, looked out onto the river. It's just a beautiful view and started to pour our coffee, you know, coffee we never drank. Mm. And uh, things progressed from there. He was very cordial, very nice in the beginning. And I started to pick up my file to start to show him things. And he then he began to point down to the river at a uh, little old dilapidated building And he starts saying, you know, when I become governor, not if, but when I become governor, I'd like to restore that. It was an 1800 jailhouse. And he said, I think that would be an interesting visitor site. And so he motioned for me to come over to him. And when I did, he sort of put his arm around my shoulder to point to the building. 
And that's when I started to get uncomfortable. And that's when things started to progress. He started to try to kiss me, and I pushed him away. But um, the man wouldn't take no for an answer. It went. It got worse from there. And, and you were a married woman. Yes, but you know, I was also a woman who was about to get into a divorce oh. and having an affair with another man. And I tried to explain that to him that, no, this is not what I want. You know, I have things going on in my life and I came here to show you this information. But that didn't help, Ed, at all. Now, I've talked to a lot of the people who knew Clinton back in those days. And, and there's all the stuff you hear about Mena, Arkansas, and, you know, Iran-Contra and all that funny business going on. Uh, what, some people say that he was using cocaine at the time. Do you think he might have been using coke? One of the ladies, and I can't say her name, because she was having an affair with him um, around the time of the rape, you know, and afterwards. And I spoke to her one time, and I said, why on earth were would he do that to me when it was such a, a violation, and he had other women that he could go to for that such thing? I mean, I didn't want it. And she said, you know, he was using so much cocaine at the time. So, But I, I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. That's just what she told me. And and this is one of the well-known women that was uh, uh, associated with Clinton at the time? Like her name is public? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I think I've talked to all of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, it does seem like he was using a lot of coke at the time. Okay, so now... Yeah. Oh. Go ahead. The incident was, was brutal and violent, right? There was no romance in this whatsoever. Oh, my God. No. I, you know, even even being a registered nurse, I had never known anyone close to me or anywhere that had suffered anything like this. This was completely unknown to me and violent. And, you know, and after the rape was over, I was, I was set up on the side of the bed still in shock, not believing what had happened to me. And I'm sitting there crying, and he looks at me with this look of frustration and bewilderment and, and, and says, he says, I'm sterile. I had mumps when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Now, if that wasn't the most bizarre thing you could say to someone that you just raped, I wasn't concerned about anything like that. I was concerned about being so violently raped. And during the attack, he had this, he was doing this thing where he was biting on your lip as, as well as pushing you down at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Right, right. He pushed down. In fact, I had bruises on my left shoulder where he would push down and then he would start to bite my lip if I yelled Uh or if I resisted. My lip, by the time this horrible incident was over, was swollen probably twice the size. It ended up being much larger and was bleeding. And there I sat on the bed and he had no remorse. It was just like it was an everyday occurrence. And he looks at me, puts on his suit coat, walks to the door, puts on his sunglass very casually, and motions to me, said, you better get some ice on that. Referring to your lip. Yes. 
Now you, you got yeah, you got to think too. It's such an unusual uh, physical restraint move. You know, I wouldn't think of it. Uh, this would have to be something he had practiced before and done previously. Because who would come up with with an idea like that? Well, Elizabeth Grayson Ward said she suffered the same thing. Really? Okay, I didn't know that. And yeah. it was prior to you or after yeah. you? I'm sorry. Was that prior to your rape or after your rape? After after mine. And even though she said that it was consensual, she remarked about the lip biting. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, now, what about out of all the women, uh, there was a lot of a, has anybody else come forward with a, with a brutal rape like this, as you described? No, approximately a year, somewhere within a year after my Dateline interview showed, I had a lady follow me out of Walmart. And uh, she said, beautiful, beautiful blonde lady, probably close to my age, a little younger. And she, she hollered my name and she said, I just want to tell you what happened to me. And she began to tell her story. And she was at, she was, she and her husband were friends with the Clintons. And she was at a gala at one of the hotels in Little Rock. And she said she went to the restroom and Bill Clinton, she said, was drunk and followed her in there and smashed her up against a wall, started to tear at her clothing. And she said she doesn't think she would have been able to stop the abuse and the assault had another lady not walked in the restroom. And I said, why didn't you come forward? She said, I just went back and told my husband and we left. She said he would never allow me to come forward. Now, after your incident, though, uh, people did witness your injuries, right, and saw how upset you were. Oh, yeah. You know, after the rape, I went to the door and I locked it because I had this feeling like somebody's going to come in and get rid of me. Mm. This is just this is absolutely astounding that this could happen. And I laid back down. And I don't know how much time went by, 30 minutes, 45 uh, minutes or so. I hear a knock on the door and I go to it and it's Norma. I had completely forgotten about her and the seminar. I just wanted to lay down, go to sleep and wake up and think that, you know, maybe this didn't happen. And I opened the door and she saw me still in the same state and she came rushing in and I started crying all over again. Mm -hmm. And I explained to her what had happened. And I'll never forget how kind she was. She was my friend. And she got ice from my mouth. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. So she packed up everything, helped me change clothes. And we left for home. Yeah. And in the 70s, even if it wasn't a powerful man like Clinton, it was still a difficult uh scandalous like you know it's shameful to, to report a rape you know it was a uh, and it wasn't handled very well by the police back in those days either the, the cops uh, would men would come and, and uh, uh right away oh, it was a yeah. whole different time people need to understand that right, <sighs> and he was the police right <laughs> he was the attorney general and I, there's no way i could have come forward it was the attitude back then in the 70s uh, men will be men. Just deal with it. And that's what we did, Ed. That's what we did. No, I'm 55 years old. I'm very familiar with the culture. I was back in those days, yeah. Now, uh, did you? Yeah. who else did you tell besides uh, Miss Rogers? 
Well, we told her sister shortly after we got back. They both work for me. Uh, Norma Rogers was my director of nursing, and her sister, Jean Darden, was my assistant director of nursing. And so we told her almost immediately. And then I told my friend, uh, uh, Susan Lewis, uh, she, I was the godmother of her children, and I told her shortly thereafter. And then my nursing friends, Louise Ma and Kathleen uh, Krigler, I told both of them. And, of course, I told the man that I was having the affair with. I didn't tell my husband at the time because we weren't really speaking that much, and we were on the verge of divorce. And he would have blamed me also. Oh boy, I'd say what a what a horrible uh, situation to go through. Yeah, and the thing too is Bill Clinton regulated my nursing home as Attorney General and then as Governor. He could have put me out of business. Yeah, that's true too. I never even considered that. Now, uh, did you ever have any contact again with Clinton uh, um, after that? Did he call you or anything? Yes, in '91. Now, in 1984, I received a letter from him. Uh, well, I'll, let me back back step here just a little bit. After I returned home, he would call me at my nursing home. He would call and I would tell my assistant, which was very uncomfortable because she didn't know the situation. And she would come to me and she said, Bill Clinton's on the phone. And I said, well, tell him I'm busy. I, I can't come to the phone right now. This happened two or three times. and then. The final time that he called, I happened to answer the phone, and he had the audacity to say to me, hi, this is Bill Clinton. When are you coming to Little Rock again? And I just hung up. Can you believe he would say that to me? It's just fascinating. You have to wonder what what is going on in his mind and and his whole life is a life of evil. You know, it's just a life of evil. I know. It's just like, it's just like, this is my right. Right. <laughs> I have the right to rape you and you be quiet about it. Now, all the time, uh, the interaction you had with Clinton, did he ever mention his wife that he was married and, or, you know, had any kind of relationship with his wife? No. <laughs> never he brought her up. never mentioned her. Never brought her he up. never mentioned her. And I had no idea that it wasn't. At that time, I didn't know that. They didn't have a good relationship. I just couldn't understand why he did that to me. Now, the story started getting out. There were rumors about this going on. How did that come about? You think the women you told uh, started sharing with others? I don't know. Back in uh, the mid 90s, a gentleman that used to come to our home as a salesman, his name was Philip Yoakum. He was close friends with um, uh, that guy that ran for governor. His name, Nelson um, something or other, uh, Sheffield Nelson. And they got together and wrote a letter to the media stating that they, because they did not want Bill Clinton to succeed as president. And they wrote a letter to the media stating that I had been bought off by Bill Clinton, but this rape did occur. And that's what caused a lot of media, you know, uproar uh, in the mid nineties. And just to clarify that you've never been paid any money by the Clintons. Oh no, absolutely. I, I would never have, you know, that that's just, 
That's just unimaginable to me. It's like insult to injury, you know? Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. I was financially secure. You know, I certainly didn't need anyone's money to be quiet. It's just something that I chose to do because I blame myself for allowing that monster to come to my room. What about any kind of threats or intimidation? Well, the only thing that I had was that letter that I received from Bill Clinton in 1984. I had received uh, an award from the state for being the best nursing home in the state. And across the bottom of it, Bill Clinton scrolls, I admire you very much, Bill. And I took that as, thank you for being quiet. That, mm. I did take it as sort of a threat. And then, of course, uh, after, about three weeks after the rape, I had the misfortune of meeting Hillary Clinton uh, at a fundraiser that uh, I had helped arrange in this area at my friend's home. And after the rape, I had told my friends, Buddy and Betty Criswell, Betty and I played tennis together, and Buddy was my, my dentist. And I had helped arrange this wonderful fundraiser for Bill Clinton at their home. And I told them that I wasn't going to be able to attend and that, you know, I'd had something come up. And they were very understanding. But I told them I had some checks that uh, that were written to the Clinton campaign, and I would bring those up before the fundraiser. So I went ahead up there. They had no plans whatsoever to say for the event. Did not want to see Bill Clinton and didn't know Hillary. Um, and But before I could get out of there, my friend Chuck Watts, he was a local pharmacist, who drove them from the airport to the Criswell home. And he rushes over to me. I see him coming in the back door. And he said, I just want to let you know that the topic of the conversation all the way from the airport was the Clintons asking me questions about you. And man, I just froze. And I tried to think any way just to get out of there as quick as I could. About that time, here comes the Clintons through the back kitchen area. Uh -huh. And I see a lady pointing at me with the standing with Hillary, and here she comes. I couldn't make it to the door. She was between me and the door, and here she comes straight for me. And I must tell you, as she started toward me, the thoughts in my mind was, here comes that poor lady that's married to that horrible rapist. And just hold that thought. <laughs> and so here she comes to me, takes a hold of my hand, and begins to say, it's so nice to meet you. I just want to tell you how appreciative that Bill and I are for everything you do for the campaign. And I, I nodded, and I thought, I've got to get out of here. So I turned to walk away. All of a sudden, I feel someone grab me from behind. And I thought it was somebody going to tell me goodbye. I turn around, and it's Hillary, hmm. and she pulled me close to her, and that beautiful smile has faded, and it's now a very angry look, and she very quietly says to me, do you understand everything you do? I could have, I could have fainted right at that moment, and I jerked from her, my arm from hers, and I left. Okay. Now, I take from that that there could be no doubt in your mind that Hillary was aware of the rape. 
I don't know. At the moment, people keep asking me about that. Right. At the moment, I knew she knew. But I don't know if she thought it was consensual or right. I really don't know. But at that moment in time, I thought she knew. She was absolutely aware that you were keeping something quiet. Yes. Yeah. Oh my! Yeah, I tell you, you know, I do a lot of interviews. You know, I'm a private investigator. I've interviewed a lot of witnesses, and uh, every single word coming out of your mouth has the absolute ring of truth. You know, uh, just no doubt in my mind. Now, you know, I sit when I'm talking with with uh, interviewers like you, and I, I, I look, I, I think back about to that moment in time because there's nothing that can erase that from my mind and I just relate what happened right and and the detail you know there's just a lot of little indicators now how did your story finally come out because it wasn't willingly this wasn't Paula Jones Paula Jones Ed I probably would never have come out I was doing great financially everything was going you know well in my life I had remarried and everything was wonderful. And then all of a sudden, I get notification from the Paula Jones lawsuit that I had been named as Jane Doe number five. I was irate. I didn't know Paula Jones at the time, but I was angry that I was being outed and drawn into her lawsuit. And did you have to take a deposition? What happened? Yes, and I denied it. Denied in the deposition, right? I, I was not on I was not about to be pulled into this unwillingly, and I denied it. And, of course, the Clinton uh, attorneys were there at that deposition, and were just you could just see the smiles on their face, and that was hard, you know, knowing that I was denying that the most horrific event of my life. And then, I wa- and so I wasn't called in the Paula Jones suit. I did what I needed to do to stay out of it. And then, of course, as you know, I was uh, deposed by Ken Starr. And before I showed up at my attorney's office for that deposition, my son, who's an attorney, came to me and said, Mom, Paula Jones' suit was civil. He said, this is federal. He said, you've got to go ahead and tell the truth. And I said, I just can't. I can't. He said, I know. I know, but you have to. So that's what happened. And and they gave you immunity too to get to, so you wouldn't have a problem with the perjury charges in the original uh, uh, deposition, wow. right? Well, which is normal, right? Now, yeah, that that I didn't really care about that. I just wanted to get the truth out. Finally, get the truth out. Be a be brave and do it. You know, I I just didn't have a choice. Now, in your interaction with Ken Starr, a lot of people, because uh, if you look at the history of Ken Starr, a lot of people think that he was running interference for the Clintons. Did you ever get that impression? No, I didn't, because I worked mainly through Dave Shipper. Dave was so nice. I mean, he even wrote uh, the most wonderful autographs in uh, his book, Fell Out, and sent that to me. It, it was just tremendous. Dave always believed me. And if you have you read Fell Out? No, I have never even heard of it, no. Oh, Dave Shipper's book. He was the uh, lead counsel on the uh, Ken, for Ken Starr in investigating all of the women. Okay. And uh, it, it was just awesome about how he tried to get the Democrats to read my sealed file, you know, at, in Congress. 
and uh, they they wouldn't do it at all. Now, what was the the, uh, the public's reaction during the Ken Starr investigation when when you came out? Uh, how were you received then? Very well, very well by the public. Uh, not very well by you know the Democrats, uh, but very well by the by the general public. Much much positive reviews. Got very few negative reviews. Just just today, you know, I'll get a few today that are just absolutely horrible. But I just delete those and and go on and try to keep positive. And the media, the Clintons seem to have an unbelievable influence over the media that they can just do no wrong. Uh, what's been your experience with that? I have no idea, unless a lot of the media were involved in all of the money dealings of the Clintons. I just, I absolutely do not understand it to this day. I was shocked when the young lady Goldberg for New York Times came out with her op-ed, oh, what, two or three months ago, and said, I believe Juanita. Hmm. And, and Joe Scarborough just I came out, too. Joe, Joe Scarborough just came out the other morning and said he believed you. I know. And, you know, I watched that uh, on um, YouTube, and he goes along for three and a half minutes just blasting Trump. And then out in left field comes this statement of his conversations he'd had with the Democrats that, believe me, I, I that was wild. I was surprised that he still had a job with MSNBC the next morning. Well, you know, I tell you, I'm no fan of Trump. I'm no fan of Trump whatsoever. But so still, you, you can still believe Juanita Broderick. You can still hate the Clintons and know what they are. Because the blame is the nose on your face. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, right. and still out you like know, Trump. I feel about Trump. I feel about Trump like um, uh, James Woods tweeted. Uh, he said, Trump may be vinegar, but Hillary is arsenic. True. That's what he tweeted before the election. Well, what do you make of this thing last night with Trump making these horrible comments about the, the Haitians and the Africans and stuff? It's just so, uh, what do you, what do you, just... oh, <laughs> well, you know what? I, I'm not even going to ask you that because you know what? Good. I get, huh? I'm not even going to ask you that because you're going to be a guest in his uh, hotel next week. And I don't want to put you on the spot. Oh, that's, that's okay. I just wish that he would have better control, you know, of what he says. So many times in the past, he's made horrible comments. And then in a week or two, they seem to work themselves out. And many times he's right. But I just wish that he would. I know he works hard. I know he does. I have no doubt that he's a hardworking man. But he just needs to curtail what he says. How many times have you met with Trump? Uh, twice. And this was at the debate, yeah. uh, that event at the debate yeah. there? Yeah, just before the debate and after the debate. Oh, that's a good question. And now when you were there at that debate and that piece of garbage comes walking in and you could see the look on his face, he was very nervous. Uh, did, did you ever make eye contact with the, with Bill Clinton at that debate? No, not because it's because the way we were sitting, uh, and I explained that in my book that we were sitting where we had to pivot to the right between the camera platform and a huge American flag. And we could see through there, but we couldn't exactly see him, but we knew where he was. But let me tell you this, that picture that you see of him yeah. with his eyes bugged out, 
he had no idea we were going to be there until we walked in. So he saw you. And until he saw us, yes. Kathleen Willie and, and uh, Kathy Shelton and Paula Jones and myself. Uh, we were hidden, you know, the entire day. And no one knew we were going to be there. Now, that was right around the same time as the Access Hollywood tape had came out, right? Right. And I was, oh, I had so much grief over that from my son. Uh, <laughs> I had been in Breitbart, uh, at, at Breitbart uh, for an interview at the uh, Watergate Hotel, the old Watergate. And as I was leaving Washington, I get a call from uh, Trump's people asking me to be at the debate the following day. And it was five o'clock in the evening and I was on my way to Arkansas. And I told him I'd have to think about it, and I'd call him during my layover in, in Dallas. And I got to thinking about it, you know, that tape's just come out. I was just so hurt about those things that he said. But I got to thinking, we've been told to go away for so many years, and this was our opportunity to come forward in such a public forum to be heard again. So I agreed to go. Got home about one o'clock in the morning, got back on a plane at six that morning uh, for St. Louis and uh, was hidden <laughs> the whole time until we left to go to Trump's hotel to meet him. And, and how did that go when you, when you met with him? It was wonderful. He was so soft-spoken and so kind, came over to each of us. When we got there, we were taken up through a service elevator and met him on the top floor uh, in this beautiful big room. It was just very nice, and he came over to each one of us. And uh, then all of a sudden, somebody says, well, let's go into this room. And I looked at Kathleen Willie. She's a good friend. And I said, is this where we go out? And uh, so she said, I don't know. So we follow them in there. And here's this long table. And they tell us where to sit. And I thought, well, what is this all about? And so they tell us where to sit. Mr. Trump comes and, and sits in between us. And I'm looking around thinking, what's going on? And then about that time, uh, Mr. Trump says, let them in. And all of a sudden, in the door comes all these cameras and reporters. And I turned to her and I said, what's going on? We had no idea oh my God. that there was going to be a press conference. None whatsoever. Um, and so all of a sudden, they come in and Mr. Trump says, these ladies have something they'd like to say to you. And I thought, what? <laughs> we had no idea that we were supposed to speak. Now, whether this was planned or someone forgot to tell us, I still do not know to this day. But it's something to do again. You know, I would do anything to um, help Mr. Trump defeat, defeat Hillary and having Bill Clinton back in the White House. And so knowing that the tapes had just come out, I kept thinking, what on earth am I going to say? So I remembered uh, the day before I had tweeted, actions speak louder than words. Uh, Bill Clinton raped me, and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton threatened me, and there's no comparison. So that's more or less where I went with that. And uh, thank goodness I was the third one to speak. And then after that, uh, 
he will take questions. He ushered, they were ushered out the door, and we were taken to the debate. Fascinating. Behind the scenes. <laughs> you know, I had a little experience. <laughs> Wait, was, was Roger Stone involved in, in arranging that the meeting, uh, getting you over there? You know, Roger says he was, and, and you know, I believe him. Uh, whether he had written the letter to Steve Bannon. Uh, I had a reporter call me a while back and said, did you, were you, uh, was this arranged by Roger Stone? And I told him, I have no idea. I was called by the Trump people. I have no idea who arranged it, but I was never contacted by Roger Stone. I'll tell you my involvement in this, <laughs> okay? I had gotten a phone call that yeah. same day, yeah, that same day from someone who had just gotten, a guy who I know, uh, known him well, uh, and he had just gotten off the phone with Roger Snow. And what they wanted from me was they wanted the contact information for Kathy O'Brien. Do you know who Kathy O'Brien is? Oh, yeah, she was there. Kathy O'Brien o- was well, there? No, not Kathy O'Brien, yeah. Kathy Shelton. Yeah. Yeah, but you know who Kathy O'Brien is? Yeah. Oh, right. Yes, so, I did. Right. So they wanted the inf- contact information for Kathy O'Brien because I guess they wanted her at that event too. Uh, do you know anything about that? My goodness. I never heard that. Yeah. And then, you know what they said to me? And this guy had just gotten off the phone with Roger Stone because they came to me for, I, I interviewed Kathy O'Brien. Uh, I'm not convinced with her story to tell you the truth. I wasn't convinced with her. Uh, um, no. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm not either. Yeah. <laughs> but I just don't know. You know, I think she's, we should respect, you know, that she be heard. Absolutely. I agree with you. Give, give up, you know, get them on record, you know, bring them on the show, get them on record, and people can believe it or not believe it. But you know what they said to me? Well, and they had just gotten off the phone with the, uh, Roger Stone. They said that they thought that it was Kelly Ann Conway who released the Access Hollywood tape. Did, did you hear anything about that? What's that? Oh, my I've never heard that. <laughs> it was crazy. And this is the day of the debate. I'm getting this crazy phone call. And it was like, right? The guy just got off the phone with Roger Stone. I don't know. I don't know. Well, why would she do that? Well, you know what they actually said, too? They said it was Kellyanne Conway who did it because she's effing CIA. That's what the word that came out of his mouth. Now, oh. don't look at me. <laughs> I'm just telling you what they said to me. <laughs> I'm just telling you what they said to me. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I know. Now, did you, you know, when uh, I had on uh, uh, Liddy Denier, who was also a guest uh, with Trump at the debate here in Las Vegas, and the, all of his guests here in Las Vegas they were like stopped by the police and they were late to get to the thing because they were, they were held up and they were held up at the screening. Did you experience anything like that? Any kind of harassment preventing you from getting in there? No, none whatsoever because nobody knew we were there. Gotcha. Now what about afterwards? Yeah. Uh, any, any problems afterwards? No, none whatsoever. You know, we were very sheltered. We were driven and uh, we were in this motorcade of about, Ten black escalades <laughs> that were, you know, they'd even shut down the highway for just it. Yes, so, just this motorcade. So was Lady Danier. Uh, her and the honored guest, they were all, in, they were in a motorcade too, with Trump and Pence on the side, uh, but they weren't allowed in. They were held up because that, that's Le- that's Vegas for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the corruption in the sound. People knew that. Yeah, the, the people knew they were coming where they didn't know we were there. Right. The corruption know. in this town is unbelievable. Uh, so people can come here, by the way, if you're in Vegas uh, next week, the 19th and the 20th, 
Uh, you can meet uh, meet and greet with Juanita Broderick at the Trump Hotel, and then the next day on the 20th at 555 East Washington at the Veterans Memorial. Now, there was an incident where you were audited by the IRS. Do you think that was a trace back to the Clintons? Oh, sure. It was just two months after the uh, Dateline interview. Absolutely. And how'd that turn out? But, you know, they did, they, they did it uh, in a uh, backdoor fashion. My corporation, my nursing homes, was set up under a subchapter S. But when you audit a subchapter S corporation, you get the owner. So this was a personal audit? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, and how did Personal t- and business. And how did it turn out? It turned out they owed me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> it wasn't much. It wasn't much, and it took a year to get it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's not to you. You get the last laugh every time I tell you I love you. Uh, what else? What, what, is there anything I failed to ask you that, uh, that you want to get out? No, uh, not, not. I can't think of anything right at this moment, Ed. I just hope people will uh, take a look at my website and order my book if they think it's worthy. Gotcha. Juanita Broderick, B-R-O-A-D-D-R-I-C-K. It's not like uh, Broderick Crawford, the other one. JuanitaBroderick.com. The book is You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. Hey, let me ask you, did you ever hear any rumors down there in Arkansas about uh, the cocaine and the mean of Arkansas and any of that kind of stuff? Not not for several years, not until the uh, not until he ran for president. I, you know, I just I just kept my head down and stayed busy with my businesses. I didn't really I didn't want to know about him. Gotcha. Okay, Juanita Broderick, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If anything ever comes up again that you need to promote or something like that, give me a call. I'll put you right on the air, okay? Oh, thanks so much, Ed. This was fun. No, it really was. You're, you're a delight. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Good night. Well, thank you so much, Juanita Broderick, author of the book. You better put some ice on that. And How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. You can find the book uh, on Amazon. It'll be in the OppermanReport.com bookstore as well. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Juanita Broderick is a, a, a delightful woman. Her website is Juanita Broderick, B-R-O-A-D-D-R-I-C-K.com. Uh, really delightful woman. A little conversation before the show. Uh, very, very nice woman. Uh, thank you so much, Juanita Broderick. Uh, you can catch her. She'll be here in town in Las Vegas on the 19th and the 20th, Friday and Saturday coming up. Uh, what do you call first at the Trump Hotel on Friday for a meet and greet and then down at the uh, Veterans Memorial at 555 East Washington and check her out Juanita Broderick you know uh, we were talking about how the Clintons have so much influence over the press uh, I, I, I have a little experience with that as well besides my crazy story about the, the Roger Stone phone call about Kellyanne Conway being CIA, you know, which was just so bizarre. And then trying to get a hold of Kathy O'Brien and have Kathy O'Brien at that table, too. My God. Along, you know, because these other people are credible witnesses, you know. We I, we had uh, Kathleen Willie on the show. Uh, now, we've had Juanita Broderick on the show, but I didn't interview her. William Ramsey had interviewed her uh, as my guest host that, that weekend. And I have known Paula Jones for years. I knew Paula Jones. Paula Jones never done the show, Okay. And I still love Paula Jones. Uh, me and Paula Jones knew each other before I had a radio show because uh, um, we had the same agent. 
we had we had the same age as <laughs> Paula Jones. And uh, but now Paula Jones doesn't like me because she says I'm not conservative enough for her. She, you know, she thinks she doesn't understand my politics. Uh, so she unfriended me on Facebook after years of being friends before she came back out in public. When I first got the show, I used to beg her to come on the show and she wasn't doing any media back then, but then helped uh, get Trump elected. But one experience that I had uh, dealing with the press as part of the Clinton campaign, when I was covering the different campaign events for the radio show, we went out to California, we rode up and down in the Bernie campaign bus, we attended all the Bernie events, you know, in the press section. I'd be sitting right in between uh, the Washington Post and the LA Times, LMNOP. <laughs> LA Times, Opperman Report, Washington Post. So I'm sitting right between the Washington Post and the LA Times. At our little stations there they give you. Um, so I covered Bernie, we covered Ben Carson, we covered Trump, and we went to two events with Hillary. And let me tell you something, it's like night and day. Okay. There was one event here in the Nevada where the, the day before we covered a Bernie event, and it would, the, the crowd was like 10,000 people. They were lined up around the, the school to get into the school. And there were so many people that he, he held a mini rally outside first, then came inside and did the rally for the people who were able to get in. But, and then we, we did Trump uh, conventions, you know, again, big long lines and stuff like that. But the Trump ones were the most disorganized, okay? Uh, I met Hope Hicks several times. You know, just, hey, what's the Wi-Fi? <laughs> can you please give me the Wi-Fi password? It's like, I'm going to be broadcasting in a couple of minutes. No one has the Wi-Fi password. Just chaos. Because they're all volunteers, you know, and and uh, the original uh, Trump conventions, uh, 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 campaign events, he only had his security team. He had no campaign staff. He didn't even have Hopix. He had Keith Schiller and a bunch of New York cops who were running his campaign thing for him. Okay. Those are the first ones. Those are really scary. But then later on when he, he started having volunteers and stuff like that, it was a little bit, uh, uh, well, you know what? It was just as chaotic. It was just chaotic. You, you couldn't get, uh, uh, any kind of support. Okay. And the Bernie events were, were better. Uh, they were quite a bit better. They were, they were on more professional. Now, the Clinton ones, okay? Like I said, one time we, we attended a Bernie rally. It was a huge crowd. The next day, we went to a, a Hillary rally, and it was a tiny, no one showed up, okay? There was, like, nobody there. As a matter of fact, on the wall in the room, it said, like, uh, maximum occupancy 900. And even that room wasn't filled and then suddenly all these union guys, union construction workers with hard hats and tool belts came in. I had no idea what they were doing there. They thought they were doing construction. <laughs> okay. They were pulled off some job site and just brought in there to stand around and fill up the crowd. Now, I saw this. The local press saw this. No one reported on it but us. No one said a word about this. I was standing right next to the same people, the union workers that were talking about how everything was all uh, a mess. You know, and, and Hillary was late, and now it was too late to go door knocking. And the Las Vegas press was standing right there, seeing the exact same thing I saw. No one reported on this, okay? Again, also, too, there was a big rally right before the election. It was a big, big one, okay, with Hillary. This is after she won the nomination. And uh, we covered that. And that was uh, so professionally run. 
it's mind boggling. Like the volunteer staff that she had were like, you could tell they were like Harvard law grads. You know, these weren't like volunteers off the street. These were people, you know, were making hundred thousand dollar jobs. You know, you could tell by their clothes, by their suits. And when we checked in, you know, it was like, oh, what, what press output are you with? Oh, they're trying to become your friend. <laughs> they got my card. You know, they were very personable with the press and they catered it too. They catered it with food. And um, so the press totally was kissing up to them. And, you know, after the event, you need a ride. You know, you need to ride back to the hotel. We, we got buses here to help with the, the press. You know, with the Bernie campaign, you had to pay to get on the bus. But they wanted to give us, give you Ubers and rides and stuff. They, they had catering food. And at that event, uh, Hillary had these union thugs, okay, well, scouring the crowd. And they grabbed a guy who had a, a Hillary prison T-shirt on. And they beat the crap out of him, okay? We're, we're the only ones, too, that have pictures of this. Uh, they beat the crap out of this guy, and they ripped the shirt off his body, and they dragged him out of there. And, I, you know, they handed him over to the cops, but meanwhile, it was the guys who roughed him up who should have been arrested, uh, but they weren't. Now, I even made a joke. <laughs> you know, we were there. This is the one, too, where, where uh, Victoria has pictures of herself with all the people from CNN and stuff like that and MSNBC. And some of the pictures are on my Facebook page. Uh, but... While I was broadcasting there from the event, and I'm right in the middle of these, you know, packs, you know, they're all eating the free food and you're getting their free rides back to the casino and stuff like that. And Hillary makes this comment about, uh, <laughs> there's a line of people all the way around the block. And I says, yeah, they're Haitians lined up to get their money back. <laughs> the people next to me, like, look over, like, who's this guy? Opperman report. Who's he? He's <laughs> no one dared. To, to raise a peep, a negative peep about the Clintons. Uh, so that'll give you a little, a bit of an idea about uh, how the Clintons handle the press with kid gloves and, and treat them like kings. If you enjoyed tonight's show with Juanita Broderick, JuanitaBroderick.com, her book, You Better Put Some Ice on That, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton, available on Amazon. Only been out a week. It's been barely out, though. The ink's still wet. Um, check out our, our section, the, the member section at OppermanReport.com. If you enjoy these shows that we give it for free on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, uh, support these shows by becoming a member of our member section where we have all kinds of additional content. I just did a 90-minute interview with Michael the Black Man. He's the guy you see for Blacks for Trump who stands behind Trump, and he was involved in this crazy cult, Yahweh Ben Yahweh cult involved in 15 murders. Uh, fascinating interview. It was a little hostile. The guy was screaming at me. I, I, I put in 90 minutes of getting screamed at by this guy. And I did it for you. <laughs> okay. So now you got you to show your love and support back. OppermanReport.com. Join the member section and help support the show. And if you want to advertise here, let me tell you something. I made a little joke about the potato juice the other night. I've got a thousand emails about it. So if, if you want to advertise your website, your business, your event, shoot me a line at OppermanReport. And now a word from our sponsors. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com every Friday night, 5 p.m. and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year. If you contact me directly at oppermanreport at gmail.com, I'll set you up with a little special deal there where you get a discount if you PayPal me directly and you even get a copy of my book. 
I want to thank Sean Duff from strawman.com. He runs the website. He runs the, uh, the, the, the member section. And I also want to thank William Ramsey, who helps us produce the show and book guests. You can find Sean Duff at strawmanmusic.com. He's an excellent musician. You can find William Ramsey, who's an excellent author, at William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by pscoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscoco.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days. Or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the cocoa chocolate business and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at subashtechnosis.com. Their website is www.subashtechnosis.com. And their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Archival Revival, the Christian Film Archive, is currently paying for vintage Christian films. They are dedicated to preserving and restoring classic Christian films and media. So if you have original prints, negatives, or other film elements of classic Christian films, or you have audio recording masters for classic Christian record albums, they want to buy them from you. So email archival.revival at gmail.com, and they're going to make you an offer. Archival Revival wants to preserve these classic Christian films so that they continue saving people for years. These films have brought people to salvation. They want to continue that. Their staff has decades of experience in handling and preserving of film elements, utilize the very best climate-controlled film storage facilities around the world. Contact them today at archival.revival at gmail.com. If there's someone you know has these prints, negatives, recording masters, or other materials from vintage Christian films, you can check out their blog at archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Now, just so you understand, Archival Revival wants to pay you for these films. So you can look in your church attic, in the church basement. If you have a friend who runs a Christian youth ministry, these youth vacation Bible study camp, uh, these films are all over the world and they're gathering dust and they're going to deteriorate if they don't get into the hands of Archival Revival. So that's archival.revival at gmail.com or the blog spot is archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by EmailRevealer.com. You can go to EmailRevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. 
Well, you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing, if you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get an autographed copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. Uh, also, too, if you need any kind of a PI work at emailrevealer.com, asset searches, locates, uh, infidelity investigations, uh, emailrevealer.com. Okay, we have a, a returning guest here, one of, one of our most popular guests, as a matter of fact, uh, Charles Ortel. You can find him at charlesortel.com, and absolutely the foremost expert on the Clinton Foundation, bar none. Uh, Charles Ortel, are you there? I sure am. Yeah, there's no one doing this <laughs> like you are, right? Well, I, it just happened that I picked on this by chance and uh, saw it as a big topic early on. And uh, fortunately, I'm retired, so I can do what I want to do. And, um, you know, it struck me that this was a major issue of concern across party lines. Nobody around the world or in America is in favor of using a charity to enrich yourself and fund political campaigns, uh, hijacking money that's meant to go to deserving victims around the world, but instead using it for yourself. Nobody's in favor of that. Yeah, just think, like, how low can you stoop, you know? Uh, you're going to take the money out of, of poor families, earthquake victims, uh, you know, and and divert that money to your own personal use. I don't think you can get any lower than that. Uh, before we get into the Clinton Foundation, just remind the audience, who is Charles Ortel? Well, uh, thanks for asking. Um, I am somebody who was fortunate to have parents who care deeply about education and being the eldest child. Um, I wanted to please my parents, so I liked doing well in school, and I've always enjoyed learning. I've had the fortune to go, thanks to my parents, to excellent private schools and on to some decent colleges and graduate school. And then I had a nice career as an investment banker, retired early in 2002 at the age of 46, and was able then to you know take care of my kids. I had to gain custody of them and then to um, really do whatever I wanted to do. 
And after five years of doing that, <laughs> I got a little bored with not actually caring much about the business world. So I began uh, again by chance, acquainting myself with how the market was valuing companies. And through that work, I identified General Electric Corporation as a company in 2007 that I felt was uh, extremely vulnerable in the looming global crisis I saw coming. So I, I started warning the world about it and was pr pretty quickly proven right. So I got into the business of commenting on large, complex frauds and uh, problems and also geopolitical and national political issues uh, and television, radio, media, print media, and podcasting and stuff. And that, again, along the way, uh, somebody I got to know in the investigative world mentioned to me, you know, you, you seem to study complex things. Take a look at this Clinton nation. And I was just amazed in March of 2015 when I quickly figured out that A, the Clinton Foundation was a gigantic fraud, and B, that uh, Hillary Clinton most likely would be the nominee and that she would lose. So um, I saw that I had a fair amount of time. I saw that it would be an issue of consequence. I realized early that you know a lot of people would, would, would not be happy with the conclusion, so that I better make sure my analysis was grounded. And I did it very systematically. I put the stuff out um, uh, on my site, charlesretell.com, and uh, I give this stuff away for free. Um, lots and lots of people around the world have come to study it. And finally, after winning, Donald Trump is now in a position where um, he can unite America, frankly, expose the depth of this depravity, um, and use this uh, widening investigation as a means to bring regulation of charities into the 21st century. We have $5 trillion in the United States supposedly around $5 trillion or so, locked into these large charities, uh, many of which are not really regulated properly. They don't have true independent audits. They don't disclose just how much private benefit, you know, whether that be uh, capital gains or, or cash or an advance that these uh, charities give illegally to trustees, to executives, to significant donors. On the books, without changing a law, there's some very serious penalties that could be applied to this pile, some portion of this pile of $5 trillion in assets. And by exposing the Clinton Foundation, and it's not just the Clinton Foundation, it's many allied charities, uh, all of us in the United States might have an opportunity to cast a critical eye on the charity land and ask these trustees, ask these wealthy people, why is it that you enable, allow this Clinton Foundation and the related frauds to escalate to becoming a global disgrace? Why did you do that? And, you know, then turn on some of these foundations that are the worst offenders and require them to pay massive fines, penalties, and interests to reduce our debt. So, I mean, it's a big opportunity for all of us. I, I actually, and since the last time I've spoken to you and your audience, I would say I probably spent 65% of my time on left-leaning stations and 35% on right-leaning. And that actually, uh, you know, there, this is one area, one bipartisan area of unity. Nobody sensible is in favor of this, of charity fraud of any kind, let alone of this kind. Well, who, who regulates this, these charities? Well, the simple answer is nobody does properly. Um, there are too many charities in the United States for the existing apparatus to actually be able to stay on top of all of them. And if the problem is especially acute when you deal with charities like the Clinton Foundation that are scattered all over the United States and scattered around the world. Uh, technically, the technical answer to your question is the first port of call would be 
the Arkansas Attorney General. Well, how is the Arkansas Attorney General, which is a small state with a thin staff, how is that Arkansas Attorney General going to be able to police a charity that's operating all across Africa, Asia, Papua New Guinea, South America, you know, Australia, you name it, with a small staff? The answer is you're not going to be able to do it. And that, that that's before considering, you know, the how much influence Clinton loyalists may have even though Republicans control the state now in terms of elected offices, there are a lot of Clinton loyalists in the machinery uh, scattered across Arkansas. So how do you, how do you, you know, it's very difficult to actually make progress. And that's why when I, when I looked at this, you know, I approached the Arkansas attorney general in August of 2015. And though that person is a Republican, um, I got nothing. And so when I saw that it was going to be that difficult to, to move things along, I said, you know, the right way to do this, is to reach out around the world to the principal countries in which either the Clinton Foundation operates or solicits or both, and and using my contacts in each of these countries, uh, begin to educate them as to the, the the fraud, the nature of the fraud, and then to put this in a position where people around the world can start asking, you know, why are so many governments and big private foundations uh, why were they willing to tolerate this fraud? And why have so few, why have none of the attorneys general, you know, across this country, whether Republican or Democrat, why have none of them been moved to go against the Clinton Foundation and apply the leverage that exists under the laws, under these law, under our tax laws, federal and state tax laws? When the IRS flips the switch, when an individual state finance department switches, uh, moves the switch to the go position, you have enormous leverage against a charity. A charity is not allowed to engage in any activity other than its authorized, strictly authorized, specifically authorized purposes. If you raise money as a charity for one purpose, building a, a presidential park and library in Little Rock, but instead use it even for a good purpose, curing cancer, fighting AIDS, you name it, that's illegal. That's called diversion. You're not allowed to do that. And you're certainly not allowed to say that you're raising money for earthquake victims and instead use the money for your political campaigns or for your mansions or for your travel expenses or your mistresses. Not allowed to do any of that. And you're definitely not allowed to have a, a long record now, more than 20 years, where you're supposed to produce independent audits, strictly performed, truly independent audits by competent accounting firms. There has never been an audit that passes the muster of, uh, you know, that I see out there of generally accepted accounting principles in the United States of America, which is the standard. There's never been an audit, a legally compliant audit of the Clinton Foundation. There have been fake audits. So I say this is a fake charity. There have been fake investigations into this fake charity uh, up until uh, 2017. And it's time for the American people to understand the degree to which the Clintons and perhaps even the Bushes uh, may have co opted the process of bringing this fraudulent enterprise, this criminal enterprise, to heal. Just recently it was announced that the Sessions has opened up a Department of Justice investigation. Now, have they contacted you and said they want to bring you in? You'd think, what more of an expert could they want? Well, so the way I understand this sort of stuff works, and it's really for the protection of each of us in America here, when the Department of Justice and the FBI train their significant resources on a potential case, uh, they remember that all Americans are innocent until proven guilty. So they're often loath to involve people who are not members of the government process in an investigation. So it's not surprising I would not have been contacted directly by anybody. I imagine that could change. 
But um, as of this moment, I have had no direct contact with any member of, uh, you know, of American government and some indirect contact with members of numerous foreign governments. Okay, you mentioned earlier that this was a gigantic fraud. In all of your examination of other charities and businesses, like you said, GE and stuff like that, um, have you ever seen anything like this? Never, because you see, what you have here is, it, it, it's, it's really sad in, in many ways. What you have here is a business model for fraud, in quotes, a business model for fraud. Um, if you and I, if Ed Opperman and Charles Hartel, we create the O2 charity, two O's, I guess. <laughs> Uh, or two or whatever. Double O, and double O. Is, yeah, double O, exactly. <laughs> double O seven or whatever. And go. I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, dropping names a little bit, but I, I do know Sean Connery. So oh, very good. him to be the, the honorary chairman. But anyway, um, and we just say what we're going to do is something wonderful. You know, typically you put a starving kid on the cover of a charity and, and you'll get money. You know, I'm being very cynical here. But you, if you, if we were to allege that we were going to pursue some purpose, go through the formalities, the nominal formalities of filling out paperwork, but then ensure that our directors were all beholden to us, that our accountants were not ever actually going to check the books, but would say they were going to do it. There's the potential to raise tremendous amounts of money. Americans each year, roughly speaking, give $200 billion a year to charity. So there's, and with the PayPal and the internet, it's very easy to create an argument for, uh, you know, getting money. And if you're prepared to break the rules, and moreover, if you're prepared to obstruct justice, uh, which are the two counts that Bill Clinton, I believe, was he was never convicted, but he was indicted. The, the impeachment is akin to indictment uh, for obstructing justice and lying under oath. Those were the two counts during that famous matter in 1998. So if you're prepared to make a career of that and you're a global celebrity like the Clintons and the people they attract, and you also have as a benefit a wife who is going to maybe one day run for president and possibly win, you have an argument to attract a lot of money. And the total declared amount of money in the Clinton Foundation books, such as they are, is about $2 billion. But that's nothing compared to the amount of money that may have gone actually towards Clinton charities and towards the charities affiliated to the Clinton. So one small example, it's not that small, but one reasonably small example is the uh, Interim Haiti Relief Committee, which uh, got no one really knows how much money because Bill Clinton's co-chairman of it and has refused to allow for any real accounting. But that thing got anywhere from 10 to 14 billion, depending on who you listen to. You got the Global Fund, uh, which is, uh, I would argue, an allied charity in that there was close coordination among Bill Clinton uh, and a, a disgraced felon, Rajat Gupta, who became chairman of the Global Fund. Uh, and McKinsey and other oper and other operations. So that thing is, I think, a fifty or sixty billion dollar fraud. And then you can go down uh, around a lot of other uh, charitable activities. And then what you have to do is you have to think about all the money that donors to the Clinton Foundation may have made. And there are many, many, many projects that uh, were concocted in what I call the Clinton Grifters Initiative. They call it the Clinton Global Initiative, which was never a charity. It was a closed shop party. Here in New York, principally, some meetings elsewhere where, you know, for a modest ticket, if you actually paid it around 20,000 bucks, you could get in a room with existing and former world leaders and titans of business in the charity land, and you could brag about what you might do in future while in practice putting together deals uh, to do telecom deals and energy deals and banking deals around the world, 
all you know safely cloistered behind the public view in this party environment, and that that is strictly forbidden. You are not allowed to engage in in, in business development activities in the guise of charity, and if you do create gains, you're supposed to report them on your charitable tax forms, which they've never done. Yeah, and like you said, that's super cheap access, man. Twenty thousand dollars to to rub elbows with these kind of characters, uh, right? Yeah, that that's uh, that's incredible. That's a that's a bargain. Now, what did you find out about the? Because you mentioned that the Bushes too have their own uh, shenanigans going on. Uh, that whole business about the tiny houses uh, for Haiti. Uh, I I just saw recently on uh, American Greed and they had a whole series about it. Um, and Jeb Bush was involved, and uh, uh, was that yeah. guy Wesley Clark? What do you know about that? You're talking there about Innovita Corporation, so Innovita Homes. Let me take it back a little bit because it goes, it starts before then. Okay. So without getting into you know what may have happened in Maine and Arkansas and all that stuff, leaving that aside, all right? Which happened? Well, go a, ahead. <laughs> okay. That really happened, Dad. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying that that's ancient history, <laughs> yeah. right? But just picking it up. You know, the anomalies that I see start on January 20th, 2001, when George W. Bush is sworn into office. That same, early that morning or late the previous night, Bill Clinton par- pardoned Mark Rich and his business partner, Pinchus or Pincus Green. And these people were just outrageous people who should never have been pardoned, but nonetheless he did. And um, there was an immediate hue and you know hue and cry. Even Jimmy Carter was moved, and many Democrats were moved to just deplore what the president had done. And an FBI investigation opened up in Feb by February of 2001, alongside uh, an investigation in the Southern District of New York and maybe other districts um, into this Clinton Foundation, into the fact that it may have had been used as a front, uh, as a money launder, basically, and, and possibly for public corruption. Um, so the records of that thing are actually some of the records are on file in what is called the FBI vault. There's a, the, the William J. Clinton Foundation. I call them dumps or releases. There's two releases totaling about 600 plus pages that show quite, you know, a lot of activity initially in 2001. And then James Comey takes over as uh, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York early in 2002. And though the public record I see that, that they could have had access to shows very clearly that the Clinton Foundation was an escalating fraud from 2002 forward to 2004, for some strange reason, Comey, who then was promoted to the position now held by Rod Rosenstein of Deputy Attorney General, and Mueller, who began head, to be head of the FBI on the 4th of uh, September 2001, somehow these gentlemen could not find these obvious escalating frauds including that uh, by 2000, you know, I've been involved personally and then, you know, professionally in projects that involve construction. If you have a, if you don't have tight controls, you can invent, you can hide a lot of money yeah. in a fake construction cost estimate, right? If you get a, a crooked team involved and, and you want to just make money disappear, you overstate the value of the project. And I think that's what happened in the Clinton Foundation. And and the 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 immense overstatement actually happened um, as the Clinton Foundation complex was completed, and as documents were transferred from the National Archives into the Clinton Foundation. So you go into year 2004 when this investigation and when there was a grand jury open, 
And when, in theory, uh, the, uh, the attorneys were trying to win indictments, somehow they couldn't get a conviction together, an indictment and a conviction together for a fraud that was massive right as this thing opened on the 18th of November 2004. Uh, that's very strange. So it makes me wonder, you know, what leverage might the Clintons have had on the on uh, on the Bushes, and you know, to figure all that out, I imagine perhaps the Clintons might have combed through files while they were in the White House. We know that they secured a whole bunch of FBI files, and, 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 and while Bill was president, we don't know whether those are all the files, whether there were additional files that were gotten, whether there's additional information that was gotten. We don't know what leverage the Clintons had on the Bushes, but it's very suspicious to me that. You know, especially in that in that early period when the the audits, the supposed audits of the Clinton Foundation, they're available, but they're per, not on the Clinton Foundation website. And you look at them, as I have gotten them from Massachusetts and California and New York, they state flatly that the, the, the accounts are prepared not in accordance with U.S. accounting principles. You're not allowed to do that. There's just no way you can do that. And yet they did it. And so it's very surprising that President Bush's Justice Department and the IRS did not make an issue of it and stopped this fraud all the way back in 2004. So moving along, the fraud escalated, became more international, became more diabolical in that it was, uh, you know, it moved into this area of, in theory, fighting HIV AIDS. And I've talked a little bit, I think, with you about that before. Since the last time we've talked, experts have helped me out uh, to understand it. Their record, in theory, fighting HIV AIDS is so disgusting that the many celebrities who've gone to these galas, the Elton Johns of this world and the you know the Hollywood people, they should be ashamed of themselves. There were never any controls on this operation. It was never validly authorized. It is extremely dangerous to distribute HIV AIDS medicine that hasn't been tested properly in countries such as Haiti and elsewhere in Africa and, and Asia and around the world that are poor because you know, unlike the United States, where treatment costs, the medical costs are like twenty percent of the total cost. Uh, that's because we have an infrastructure, we have roads, we have electricity, we have clean water, we have hospitals and doctors. They don't have that stuff in many of these places. And so poor people who are you know, not nourished well, thin little kids and uh, other people scattered throughout remote parts of these countries can test positive for HIV mm-hmm. and actually not have HIV. And if you give them medicine intended to fight HIV and they don't really have it, you can kill them. And what's worse is there was a drug company called Ranboxy, R-A-N-B-A-X-Y, with which the Clinton Foundation teamed on October 27th or thereabouts, 2003. Now, that was an illegal arrangement. It was a business development arrangement. The Clinton Foundation was not authorized in 2003 to fight HIV AIDS by anybody. And it certainly wasn't authorized to enter into an agreement with a drug company to, to try to promote the sale of drugs. You can't do that as a charity, but that's what they did. And then... By 2004, uh, an investigation started opening and it culminated nine years later in 2013 with uh, Ron Boxy paying a $500 million fine and pleading guilty to distributing adulterated drugs, not simply HIV AIDS drugs, but all kinds of drugs. And uh, some of these drugs more than likely ended up being distributed through the Clinton Foundation in, in, in quotes, good offices. Now, that's disgusting and deplorable. And so what you're talking about is by 2009, in around March or April 2009, Bill Clinton was designated special U.N. envoy to Haiti. 
He'd had long-standing ties to that country, and there had been long-standing problems in that country. Around the same time, a company called Innovita Homes um, began to argue that um, it could create these these homes that would be very useful in Haiti. Now, the problem is, I think the promoter was a man, I forget his first name, but his last name, I think, was Osorio. And he was a clever fraudster who's now, I think, still in prison, who managed, who thought it through and said, you know, the way to make these deals work is you get a, you get the Uniparty team together. You get a Bush and you get a Clinton. Mm. So they, Jeb Bush was temporarily either an advisory director or somehow involved. Wesley Clark was involved. And Hillary, I think, was still uh, in the State Department uh, by the time this project all came together. And I want to say uh, they, they, they organized some sort of special, I forget whether it was OPIC, OPIC, or some kind of you know, U.S. or multilateral financing was arranged for this company. And it turned out the company was a fiction. But the guy was you know, taking the money and sending it up his nose, paying for a happy lifestyle. And he w- went to prison for fraud. And that, uh, I, I joke about this. Uh, my father is very much alive, a nuclear physicist, and he is a scientist. I am not. But I joke that I have created Ortel's first law. And Ortel's first law, and probably only law, is you take anything connected to the Clintons, you put it in quotes. So you take Osorio in quotes or Innovita Holmes in quotes, and then you put fraud next to it, and you put that into Google. And you will always be amused. You will always find something of interest. That's so that. true, yeah. And Obama was involved in that, too. Even while he was a senator in Chicago, he somehow uh, attended a, a fundraiser for that uh, that uh, Haitian company with the tiny houses. Uh, Did he really? I didn't know about that. Yeah, well, all the, name, the same names pop up everywhere, you know. Now, now, since this is all so obvious now, right, it's so right in our faces. And obviously, there's a lot of political uh, pull and corruption going on. Uh, but Sessions, if Sessions now does not uncover this and get a conviction, uh, what would that tell you? Well, it, it's taken a while to get it to the place that it's in. I think I think what we have now is we we've gone through a long period of what I would call fake investigations, but with the announcement that the FBI specifically and the Department of Justice specifically are looking not simply at email matters and public corruption and pay for play, but add into the the false tax filings. With that announcement. With the confirmation by the IRS that they've been looking at this since July 2016, with the scrutiny of Congress and the scrutiny of of Donald Trump himself, and with the growing scrutiny of foreign government, they are now boxed. There's no way – I have an article coming out imminently on this subject explaining it in depth. But the short version is that with this announcement that the FBI is investigating specifically improper tax filings, the way it works, accountants would have to notice that. Accountants for the Clinton Foundation, all of its allied charities, and there are many allied charities. And then most importantly, accountants for donors to the private foundations like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Johnson Foundation, other big, well-known, well-run foundations. When they see that, they, the IRS, the Justice, the FBI investigation, you cannot just say, oh, yeah, let's give more money to the Clinton Foundation. And you can't say, well, you know, last year we gave them $10 bucks, so we shouldn't ask for our money back. You, the, the way the rules are written, you've got to ask for your money back if you're a private foundation. You become aware that the Clinton Foundation is operated outside compliance with the law. And the further wrinkle is that a, normally what is called a private foundation, you know, think of the Gates Foundation – 
cannot donate money to something saying it's a it's a public charity. You know, the Clinton Foundation is supposed to be operated for the benefit of the general public. You can't say, well, last year I gave $10 million to the Clinton Foundation because I thought it was a public charity, and then fail to know that it couldn't possibly be deemed a public charity because on November 2nd, 2013, decision was made to change the bylaws of the Clinton Foundation, hide it from the general public, and install the Clinton family in control of the Clinton Foundation. You can't do that as a public charity. You can't have a public charity run by one family. But that's what they did do. And somebody must have known that was a mistake, so they tried to hide it. But I and others found it, and we're exposing it now. So you're in a place where uh, the IRS, the Justice Department, they have to follow the trail. Finally, they, but moreover, they have to ask themselves, why didn't the IRS catch this stuff a long time ago? Who has been obstructing this process of justice here? In the IRS, in the Department of Justice, in the FBI, who's been walking slow? Who's been fighting this? On top of that, you have all these foreign governments who are now going to be shamed into, you have the, the largest donor to the Clinton Foundation. You know, they divide it into classes and they say the biggest group is $25 million and up. The largest donor has given more than $600 million to the Clinton Foundation. And that's an entity out of Switzerland, principally funded by donations from the government of France. So, you know, the government of France has got to ask itself, why since 2006, has this Unitate given more than $600 million in theory to fight HIV AIDS, predominantly among children. It's very difficult for children to get HIV. You know, you generally, you get it through drug use and um, uh, intravenous blood transmission or sexual activity. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's unusual at age two to get HIV AIDS. It can happen that you get it through the mother, but it's very unusual in young children who, who don't have it at birth to get it. So. You know, somebody needs to take a look, particularly in France, and I hope people in France and government and outside government journals are beginning to look at it. And in other countries like the United Kingdom, which is through Unitec given hundreds of millions and actually signed up a point to commit to a billion pounds to Unitec, of which a majority in the early years was going to the Clinton Foundation AIDS unit, which was never legally organized or operated. Norway, Australia, Korea, Spain, uh, Sweden, multiple governments have given a lot of money to this fraud. And the people in their countries should be standing up and saying, hey, wait a minute. And then we turn our attention to, I believe you're in California, are you? No, in Nevada. Nevada, all right, so you're close to Close California. enough, yeah. The, the good sense not to be in California. Well, speaking <laughs> in about California, you know, California is a very important state when it comes to raising money for charities. And the laws in California, when you have a state that has rich people and high income people, typically the laws are tougher on soliciting money for charities. This foundation has been in gross violation of the law in California, yet, you know, for years. And yet, and it's been actively raising money in multiple fundraisers in California, yet, your attorney general in California has never seen fit to do anything about it. And that man's name, I believe now, is Xavier Becerra. And he also has got some issues because he was the guy who apparently was involved in that Awan scandal where um, sensitive information and computers and devices uh, were, were apparently managed by highly suspicious people under expensive contracts with nobody seemed to check anything and Becerra centrally involved in it. So, you know, this is, this is a many tentacled scandal. 
And I think people across the political spectrum, whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning or agnostic about politics, um, we all care a lot that you know money is intended for the most needy among us get used for their proper intended purposes and not to featherbed uh, grifters. Now, I'm curious because you mentioned the, the government of France gave $600 million. Uh, Have you found any indications of anything suspicious going on in, in France of what they may have benefited from this? Sure, sure. I mean, so in Europe, um, in, in Europe, the way things work is that presidential contests are not, they don't go on as long. And they're and typically they're funded by the public and there are limits on how much money can be spent. So I'm not saying that precisely this happened in France, but my suspicion is that if you can convince, if you're crooked and you can convince the treasury to send money to something that sounds good on paper, but is not actually checked, then that something, in this case, Unitaid, could arrange for money to go to something like the Clinton Foundation, not, not regulated at all, and then the Clinton Foundation could arrange for money to be wrapped to you to help you fund your campaign. That's what I'd be looking for if I were the French government. <laughs> oh, my God. Charles Ortel. We'll be right back after these messages with more of Charles Ortel. Uh, CharlesOrtel.com. Uh, fascinating stuff. It, it's uh, so detailed and so with such expertise, man. We can't get up. Uh, we'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, the show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to PSCocoa.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the Cocoa Chocolate business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India, so you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at SubashTechnosis.com. Their website is www.SubashTechnosis.com. And their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by EmailRevealer.com. You can go to EmailRevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But well, you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites, and we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, 
or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, but we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing. If you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman. Uh, we're joined here today by Charles Ortel. Uh, his website's charlesortel.com. Uh, a bunch of new articles just came out recently, uh, interviewed by Sputnik and also by Zero Hedge, and wrote an article for that. Uh, Charles, the day after, uh, it was, in fact, it was the day before, when they announced that uh, the, the DOJ was investigating the Clinton Foundation, the day before there was a fire, the Clintons had a fire. Uh, <laughs> now, you know, if this was like a mom and pop type operation right away, you'd say, oh, hey, well, what's going on here? Could they possibly claim that the records were destroyed and stuff like that? That doesn't help you. So yeah. in, they're used to, I think, um, operating in uh, politics and in business, uh, whether it's either political motives or, or for profit motives. Right. The way I understand it, I'm not a lawyer, but the way I understand laws pertaining to charity to, to operate, there is no need to prove intent in fraud, in charity fraud, and there's no need to prove actual harm. All you have to show is that the books and records that are in the public domain are false and materially misleading, and that simultaneously uh, a given charity or people working around the charity was out raising money, trying to raise money, soliciting money, not collecting it, soliciting it. Mm. That's proven. That's easily proven. The books and records of the Clinton Foundation are a complete shambles. And they admit they boast about their continually raising money. And so that's why I wrote an article. I kicked this off in March of 2015, writing an article that has now, I think, over 82,000 shares, which is a lot, uh, called With So Many Red Flags, Why Isn't the Clinton, Why Isn't the IRS Auditing the Clinton Foundation? Okay. So I, I saw this and I, I just couldn't believe that nobody's auditing it. And I think we'll get to the bottom of why nobody was auditing it. I think we're going to find out that in addition to Lois Lerner, who certainly seems to me to be crooked as hell, um, there are other crooks in the IRS and, and they probably did what they could to stop any real investigation into this fraud. So, um, uh, you don't, as I say, this is a special animal. And it's actually, it's a reverse case. When the IRS, when an attorney general in the state decides to go after a charity, what they do, they can walk in with no notice and say, produce your books and records, demonstrating to us that you have been, you were organized the date you were organized and operated continuously since in compliance with all laws. You prove that to us. We don't have to ask questions. You prove it to us. And along the way, in all these filings, in this many state filings that the Clinton Foundation has made, the IRS filings, the foreign filings, all of the, most of these in the U.S. and I think most of them internationally are all made under penalties of perjury. They're signed, they're transmitted, many of these documents, either using the mail or using the Internet. So all kinds of federal crimes and state crimes involved here. And you can't say that you burned your records. 
and you, and you shouldn't, you know, have records for the foundation in an undeclared office of the Clinton Foundation. There's no no form in New York State, for example, declares the Chappaqua address as you know the place where they're housing Clinton Foundation records. So the fire a fire is not going to help you very much. Is there any chance that they could do jail time over this? Well, let's take the poor case of Corinne Brown. And Corinne Brown is a 71-year-old lady who served in Congress for, I think, 24 years. She was running for, they had redistricted her area. She's a Democrat. She's African-American. And in three days, I believe, after James, James Comey's July 5th, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, his, his message from the Federal Bureau of Exoneration that they weren't going to go after Hillary Clinton, for uh, email-related problems. Three days after that, the uh, U.S. attorney, I think, in the Jacksonville area of Florida, indicted Corinne Brown over an $800,000 charity fraud that had lasted some 20 years or so. She has, she was one of the people involved in operating that thing. Their justice moved very swiftly in her case. She, she was convicted. She originally faced 350 years in prison for $800,000 charity fraud, and they reduced the sentence to five years. There's a 50-page sentencing memo that explains why they took such a harsh view of it. Um, you know, because you're not supposed to be using a charity for personal gain and political uh, expenses, when you do that, and when you're a serious person, you're a longtime member of Congress, the law lands on you hard to make an example. Well, she said, you know, in filings back and forth, she said, hey, I'm 71, you know, it's tough for me to go to prison. Let me at least appeal this. I want to appeal it, you know, before I report to prison. They said, you know what? You're not a Clinton. Report to prison on January 29th, 2018, which is what she's slated to do. So, you know, one of the things that really, as they say in England, cheeses me off is when you see a law applied one way because somebody's African-American and another way because they're white. I don't think that's right. And I say that as somebody who's, you know, comes out of the conservative background. I'm certainly not a progressive uh, Democrat or anything like that. So when you see the laws being applied this way to the benefit of somebody who you know, had the nerve of saying he was the first uh, African-American president, Bill Clinton, uh, and now Hillary Clinton, you know, who, who panders to blacks, um, you know, it's just it's just not right. And I think, you know, we need to see, I don't think Corinne Brown should be pardoned. And I know from what I see that the, just in the public domain, the offenses committed, the pat, longstanding pattern and practice of, of egregious fraud and personal enrichment and using these charities as arguments to fund political causes and campaigns of the Clintons is so outrageous that an example needs to be set here. And if that example involves jail time, so be it. You know, former presidents in other places around the world are in jail. You know, it's not something that we should be proud of that one of our former presidents and aspiring presidents and maybe the daughter and other people might end up in jail. But on the other hand, you know, this would send quite a message to the swamp that, you know, if you're going to be engaged in not-for-profit activities, they better be not-for-profit. There's no such thing as you know, a venture philanthropy, which I've heard somebody talking about. There's no such thing as, you know, running roughshod all over the foundation because you happen to have your name in it, but not following any of the state, federal, or foreign laws. You're not allowed to do that. And, you know, maybe it is time for this type of reckoning. I don't think, you know, people would like to say, well, this is all about, you know, political retribution. Uh, first of all, um, I, I, I go back to my opening premise. I think 
Nobody in America, when they think about it, is in favor of charity fraud. I don't think Donald Trump's administration would be punishing what we will end up knowing about this fraud because it happened to be involving mostly Democrats. Bear in mind, some of the minor elements, the affiliates, were uh, tied in for one with the George W. Bush Foundation, the Haiti effort, and the other with uh, the George H.W. Bush Foundation, the Katrina effort. So it's not simply, you know, the Clinton piece of it in, in financial terms is far bigger than whatever may happen to touch the Bush side. But charity fraud is charity fraud. And when you perpetrate one involving $800,000 in the case of Corinne Brown, because your last name isn't Clinton or Bush, you go to federal prison. Now, does that seem fair? It, it would be fair if they if they had to sell next door, you know, and, and also the Bushes as well, too. Now, now what about, uh, uh, real quick, because we're running out of time, there are 15 minutes left. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, his involvement in creating the Clinton Foundation. I have a 24-page letter where his attorney, Jerry Lefkowitz, says that he was involved. Uh, what do you know? Well, first of all, I'd love for you to email me offline that. Don't use my email address, but please email that to me because sure. I've been trying to get that letter. Uh, but yeah, that I think he's taking credit there for in 2000, I want to say two, starting in 2002, Jeffrey Epstein lent his plane to the Clinton entourage to fly around the world and explore this idea of fighting HIV AIDS. I think he also may have been involved with the Clinton Grifters Initiative, the Clinton Global Initiative. But Jeffrey Epstein. You know, it takes some nerve when you're facing sentencing to have your lawyer inflate your credentials and think that no one's ever going to check. Jeffrey Epstein is not named as a trustee, a director. I don't believe he's named as a significant donor. I may have that wrong. But he is certainly not in any paperwork suggesting that he had a prominent role in the administration, the founding or the administration operation of the Clinton charities. On the other hand, it is known from the flight logs that Bill Clinton did travel, and maybe other Clintons did travel, uh, on the plane to various places. And, you know, that whole paperwork of donating the use of your plane to a foundation, when you do that, there's, there's supposed to be a record made mm. of you know how somebody valued how much that donation was. It's a non-cash donation. How do you value that? And I see no such records in the Clinton Foundation filings. I don't know whether Epstein would have done it on his personal tax filings, whether he has a foundation. But yeah, I mean, and what kind of person, you know, would want to spend too much time associating with Jeffrey Epstein? I just happened to be reading James Patterson's excellent book, Filthy Rich, which gets into the timeline. I'm looking at it right now. It gets into the timeline. A lot of these shenanigans were happening when the bill, when the Clinton Foundation was operating flagrantly outside the law. Fascinating. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, too, that the, the Clinton Foundation had no problems attracting money, while, especially while Hillary was uh, State Department uh, Secretary of State. Now, what about today? Now that she's not in power, are they still uh, raking in that money at the same volume they were back then? Well, you have no way of knowing because the way it works is that the, the Clinton Foundation um, and all foundations have until generally if you, your year end is December 31. You have until November 15th, 2018. To to supply information concerning the first year, 2017, during which the Clintons would have suffered the most following her loss in the presidential year. So we don't, we, we simply just don't know. Gotcha. And in fact, we've, ne we've never known because the thing has never been audited. Now, what, what, I don't know if I mentioned that under New York law, um, you're going to have to file a report uh, explaining whether you're worried about this FBI-IRS investigation within 30 days. 
So it'll be interesting to see whether they decide to file, follow New York law in each of the Clinton charities, not simply the main one, um, or not. Now, they may feel they don't have to because Eric Schneiderman, an ally, is still attorney general in New York. But um, New York law, normally, the way it's written is quite strict. So we could find out an answer to your question more quickly than by November 15th, 2018, if they decide to follow New York law. And New York shut down the Trump Foundation. Exactly, for a far smaller set of offenses. So Bill Clinton was uh, agreed to become honorary chancellor of this thing called Laureate Education, a company that I think is highly suspicious. You know, it's, 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 it's track record, both going private in the leverage buyout and then going public, raising securities. I don't like the filings. I don't like all the red flags I see of executives leaving following an IPO. I don't like the reported financial performance. I don't like the fact that it's under investigation. Anyway, from sometime in 2010, I want to say April, May, for about five years, Bill Clinton co- collected a total of $17.6 million for part-time work as honorary chancellor of a for-profit university. Oh, it stinks on so many levels. That, that compensation is indefensibly high, not explained in any Clinton Foundation filing, as it should be. It is what I would call uh, enormous. It's, it's the appropriation of private gain by a trustee. Bill was a trustee. He was chairman of the HIV AIDS thing from sometime in 2009 forward, and he was a trustee of the Parent Foundation from 2013 forward. And they haven't disclosed any of this. What they went after Trump for is there was uh, Trump's foundation. They operated something called Trump University. New York is very strict about using the word university in a name, but they don't seem to care about the Clinton Global Initiative University, which was a joint venture with Laureate from 2007 or eight forward, operating here in New York, using that word university without getting cleared by our Department of Education in New York, without ever validly organizing the Clinton Global Initiative properly, without structuring a joint venture properly, without disclosing Bill Clinton's personal payments properly. You know, it's it's an example. I joke about this, and it's a sad joke. If you want to learn how to run a foundation properly, just look closely at the Clinton Foundation record and do exactly the opposite of everything they've done. Then you'll have a prayer of doing it correctly. You know, it's amazing. When you, when you look at the compensation, they're getting all, do they have that much influence to peddle? Like, it would take 24 hours a day of phone calls and fixes and to justify that kind of money they're raking in. Well, see, this is part of the larger problem. I see the real problem here as being we have a system of unregulated globalism. So, you know, people will run around. I call it the 13 Blackberry Club. You know, Rajat Gupta had 13 Blackberries. Hillary Clinton had 13 Blackberries. You're running around on planes all the time, arguing you're serving the greater global good. You're fighting climate change and AIDS and all this stuff. You can't be bothered with these piddly, piddly little American laws. And, you know, that that's what these people have been doing. and what has happened in a period of unregulated globalism with the UN, with the WHO, with the World Bank, other things like that, um, you have the ability as a, a former leader and an aspiring leader to unlock lots of subsidized money and grants. Mm. So that, you know, it's nothing to pay a perspective, you know, give $10 million to a foundation. If you can get billions back in subsidized loans, even grants, if you can get a wireless license or a mining deal, uh, or you can get forbearance, by the IRS or some foreign, uh, you know, or Justice Department or some foreign organization. I mean, this club of former leaders could scratch each other's back. 
And so I think a lot of that's been going on in the United States, sadly. It certainly goes on all across the world. And some countries are, you know, in some countries, the size of the illegal economy is as big as the declared economy. You know, so there's a lot of this. There's a lot of dirty money. It needs a home. What better way than to disguise bribery in a false front foundation? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. What? How does Uranium One deal uh, connect to the Clinton Foundation? Does it? It does, I think. So what happened is that's an example of trading favors. So it turns out that the Clinton, that uh, apparently when Bill Clinton flew to Kazakhstan in 2005, and subsequently when uh, this Uranium One predecessor company was created, um, the Russians apparently didn't like that. They, you know, people were trying to corner the uranium market. So they began to mess around inside the United States. The FBI began to investigate that. And it's one of these, if you remember Mad Magazine, Spy versus Spy, it's one of these very complex matters where, you know, different groups were trying to spy and gain uh, from cornering the uranium market. And an investigation was opened up. There's an informant who is, I think, already talking to our FBI, who alleges personal knowledge of black bags filled with cash going into uh, the Clinton Foundation to gain favor uh, through operation of our government first through the intercession of Hillary Clinton as a senator, and then later uh, when she was Secretary of State. So we'll we'll figure all this out. But it's it's you know your old fashioned corrupt practices act. You put money into a foundation, nobody will attack you for that, and then magically the U.S. government either doesn't prosecute you or gives you a benefit. And you can't connect the dots because the U.S. government is a big thing. You know, it's just one cabinet person. But in reality, there is a connection. And this needs to be put on display. I mean, it's, a, it's tough out there in the private sector to, to comply with the law. We shouldn't have a system where our government leaders are exempt from laws, profiting from their government service to the level of, you know, being president of the United States and dead broke and almost immediately starting to make you know, $10 million or more per year and having two mansions. That's just not right. Yeah, and it seems like so much money is spread around on both sides of the aisle and in Congress and in the Senate and the House that the, there's, there's never going to be honest hearings uh, on these things because everybody's got their little toe in the water, you know? I, I don't know about that. I think that the, the, the executive order that Donald Trump signed on the 21st of December is a good sign. The uh, the moves to put new people into the IRS and now the senior levels in, in, in the IRS, the Justice Department. I don't know. I, I think we have a different sheriff in town. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, the Trump administration will, in fact, use this Clinton Foundation as one way of exposing this type of fraud. Um, it's interesting to me that he's going, that Donald Trump will be at the World Economic Forum in a few weeks. Uh, how fun would it be for him to stand up and make an example of this? I'm not saying I know he's going to do it, but, you know, I certainly would be doing it if I were he, um, to go and face down the globalists and say, you know, globalism's fine if the regulations that bite, but it ain't fine if it's, you know, run the way the Clinton Foundation and Unitate have been run. That's not acceptable. Well, and we're not going to fund it. If you can't get a conviction in this deal, <laughs> there's no hope. Uh, but we, we're out of time. What do you want to leave us with, and then how can people get a hold of you? Well, I'm doing a new podcast show with Crowdsource the Truth on YouTube called okay. Sunday with Charles, and there are a lot of detailed episodes already up, many hours, many tens of hours up there. So that's one way, and I'm on Twitter at, at Charles Ortel, and my site you've mentioned is charlesortel.com. Uh, you can contact me through Twitter or uh, on my site. 
And thanks for having me on. Hey, thank you so much. And, and next time, you know, you, you got something new, just, just shoot me an email. We'll put you right on here. Thanks so much. Thanks to you and your team. Thank you very much. Good night. Okay. Well, there you get Charles Hortel. Charles Hortel. Uh, CharlesHortel.com. That's O-R-T-E-L-1-L. It's easy to find, though. Great stuff. Uh, hey, I'm going to walk from a show on a wake. When I get off the phone, I'm going to send that Clinton Foundation letter I got. What I ask you to do is support the member section, become a member, and keep the show free on the air, you know, and all the stations that carry our show. OppermanReport.com, you can become a member, or you can contact me directly at OppermanReport at gmail.com, and I'll give you a discount. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to PSCocoa.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the Cocoa Chocolate Business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India, so you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at SubashTechnosis.com. Their website is www.SubashTechnosis.com. And their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Archival Revival, the Christian Film Archive, is currently paying for vintage Christian films. They are dedicated to preserving and restoring classic Christian films and media. So if you have original prints, negatives, or other film elements of classic Christian films, or you have audio recording masters for classic Christian record albums, they want to buy them from you. So email archival.revival at gmail.com, and they're going to make you an offer. Archival Revival wants to preserve these classic Christian films so that they continue saving people for years. These films have brought people to salvation. They want to continue that. Their staff has decades of experience in handling and preserving of film elements, utilize the very best climate-controlled film storage facilities around the world. Contact them today at archival.revival at gmail.com. If there's someone you know has these prints, negatives, recording masters, or other materials from vintage Christian films, you can check out their blog at archivalrevival.blogspot.com. And all you have to do is contact them, tell them what you have. If you're in the UK or Ireland or Africa, uh, these films are all over the world and they're gathering dust and they're going to deteriorate if they don't get into the hands of Archival Revival. So that's archival.revival at gmail.com 
or the Blogspot is archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites, and we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing. If you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com.